Hello, everybody. This is the Cincinnati Herald podcast. I'm your host, John Alexander Reese, digital editor of the Cincinnati Herald. And if you didn't know, the Cincinnati Herald has been around since 1955 and is the largest African-American newspaper in the greater Cincinnati area. So let me introduce my guests. I have co-host and media consultant, Andrea Carter. How are you doing today, Andrea? Fine. How are you doing, John? I am doing fantastic. And I also have with me our special guest, Deka Hussein Wetzo, an architectural historian. How are you doing today, uh, Deka? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Now, before we jump into our main topic, we have some top news topics that we need to talk about. Melvin Van Peebles, an icon of Black cinema, has passed away. He was 89. Van Peebles was considered to be the godfather of modern Black cinema. His movie, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, was influential for filmmakers, including Spike Lee and John Singleton, because of its distinctive jump cuts and rapid editing. Andrea, your thoughts on this um, story? He was such an icon in Hollywood for the, the chances that he took in filmmaking and you know what he did. Because I remember, I never saw the film, um, Sweet Sweet Sweetback, badass but my mother talked about the film oh my god I remember how she just said oh you just horrified it was just horrified I was like if you were so horrified why don't you go see it because she said it was good (laughs) so you know it's one of those things of like you can't believe someone did it but you had to go see it because it was the thing to go see and because it was black people up on the movie screen and but I think the he was such a role model and an icon within Hollywood for the directors. I think the fact that his son Mario has taken on his legacy and has advanced in many different ways behind the scenes as a director while also as an actor. I think um, he's just someone that everyone's going to miss. I mean, oh my God, Mario, Melvin Van Peebles. Ugh. Decca, your thoughts on this story? Well, um, you know, I think when when people pass away this iconic, you can't help but reflect back on the incredible marks that they've made in their respective fields in this uh, cinema. You know, this was, you know, 1970s, you know, cinema or 1970s black cinema. And it changed the game uh, for the way people depicted African-Americans in the movies. And this this whole idea behind black exploitation that came about because of you know Marx fan people back up oh, sorry because of um, Mr. Peoples it, it was it's just absolutely amazing to see people reflecting back on it now and just talking about how incredible he was I I think that we're uh, lucky to have had him and for those who have never heard of him before um, this is a you know a, a opportunity I think for us as uh, you know African Americans in the movement to try to change the way that people depict us in in every fashion um, and this is a guy who led the way for some movies that maybe people have heard um, you know like uh, Shaft and such so it it's really it's unfortunate and sad. We're going to miss him, but, um, you know, people get older. It is, you know, unfortunate fact of life, but commemorating him. And I think the way we, we will, re- the way we will remember him, we'll, we'll come to see that this is just going to be great. I mean, there's stories that I've read today are just you know, really introspective. So I'm 
uh, I think it provides a little hope for our future um, that we're really taking the time to recognize this man right now. I think also we need to recognize with Melvin Van Peebles that he's the original guy for Black Lives Matters because he said Black images matter. And I think he pushed the, he pushed the effort within Hollywood to recognize that you need diversity on the, on the film screen to you know, enhance your marketplace. And, and, and also in society to have them recognize there's more than just one genre or one view or one look that can be up on film. So, you know, I'm going to miss them, but, you know, thank God for the inroads that he made for us and we wouldn't have what we have today without him. Yeah, I actually want to, you know, echo that and say with the music that was incorporated, the, um, you know, acknowledgement that this is, a, these are Black films, but they're not intended just for a Black audience. You know, those are the things that we'll really take away. Yeah, and I also want to say that, um, like I say, he's also a trailblazer as far as independent cinema in general, because, you know, I knew about the legacy of Sweet Sweet Back and everything. And actually, this is the uh, 50th anniversary of the film, and it's actually going to be screened at the New York Film Festival this weekend. But also that, uh, you know, the first studio picture they did was Watermelon Man. And something I found out today is that Columbia Pictures actually gave him like a three picture deal, which would be amazing for any director. But he wanted to make the movie that he wanted to make. So he just uh, funded it on his own. And I really admire that when someone has a vision and they're saying, you know what, I just want my movie to be my movie. I don't want any studio interference. So I'm just going to, you know, just fund it on my own. And the risk paid off. Like I was reading before, he was influential filmmaker to Spike Lee and John Singleton. So that's just, um, it's really great. And he will definitely be missed. And moving on. The Fugees are reuniting to celebrate the 25th anniversary of their hit album, The Score. The group, which includes Wyclef Jean, Lauren Hill, and Praz Mikkel, is launching a 12-city tour Wednesday. Their first performance will take place in New York City in support of Global Citizen Live, which will air on September 25th. The group will also make stops in cities across the U.S., including Los Angeles, Chicago, and Miami. It will conclude with two shows in Africa. Andrea, your thoughts on this news story? Why can't they come to Cincinnati? <laughs> My thoughts exactly. I'm sorry, but I'm, I loved Killing, I mean, don't get me wrong, Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly, that is an iconic song, but the fact that the Fugees did it with Lauren Hill, oh my God, they made it the song that, you know, when you want, woe is me, you're killing me softly. You know, that was the song besides ready or not, you know, ready or not, here I come. Everyone, you know, you hear that, you hear Lauren and, you know, her, her sound. The Fugees had such a unique sound in the 90s. You just loved listening to them. And one, I can't, number one, it's 25 years old. Oh my God, where has the time gone? But two, it's hard to find good music like the Fugees. So I just wish they would do more dates because I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of people who wanna see them. And I know that Chicago show is gonna sell out because I would go to Chicago to see them. But anyway. Decca, your thoughts on this news story? Um, I'm very excited, but they're not coming to Cincinnati. So, uh, you know, I might have to travel, but really like reflecting back on the Fugees, I'm a kid from the 90s. So I have really vivid, wonderful memories of, you know, when I lived in North Carolina 
there was a boys and girls club dance or a, a talent show that was very diverse. Um, and I, I, this place I live in North Carolina, it was a Greenville. It was just like incredibly, um, you know, mixed. And I saw these teenagers doing this dance to this song and I, it's still burned in my memory and in a great way. And I, you know, I love the Fugees, love Lauren Hill, love Killing Me Softly. It's like, it's, it's a song that really speaks to my heart, but you know, fast forward to, I, I moved to uh, a place that was ended up being predominantly uh, white is white suburbs and you know the the talent shows and dances there were were not like that and so you know it was a very special place um you know diversity is is quite important and I think the song helped me see that at a really early age yeah I'm just glad they're actually getting back together because to be honest with you I never thought the Fuji's would perform again because I know they got back together briefly in like the mid-2000s but I'm just like uh they're never gonna get together again like you say Andrew I wish I could <laughs> see them in person because that'd be great because even though I didn't grow up with the Fuji's I did listen to the miseducation of Lauren Hill uh, a lot so it would be just a treat just to see Lauren Hill in person. But yeah. Yes, I, I'm, I, I agree with you right there. In fact, I, I have, I've had um, the miseducated Lauren Hill both on tape. I'm now saying how old I am. <laughs> tape, CD, and I now have it on my phone. You know, so because it's an iconic album that speaks to all the generations. The Fugees on certain songs speak to all the generations. Um, and I'm just glad they're they're getting back together to perform because you never know when this is going to happen again. Moving on, a phase two slash three trial conducted by Pfizer and BioNTech revealed that the COVID-19 vaccine was safe and generated a robust antibody response in children ages five to 11. These are the first such results released for this age group for a U.S. COVID vaccine. Pfizer said it plans to submit to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization soon. The company said it hopes to have approval by the end of the calendar year. Andrea, your thoughts on this news story? It's so needed. It just wounds me every single time I hear a story about the kids getting, um, being in the hospital, especially with COVID, and you know how the school districts are battling this virus, how they're trying to deal with it. And you know, there's no protection out there for the kids. Kids are our future. We need to be working hard to protect them. And so I'm glad that Pfizer has announced that yes, the kids can get the shot. I just hope that parents take advantage of it when it's available to get them the shot so that they can um, be protected, go to school, have a future. I know we're all trying to do the best we can to protect ourselves in this pandemic from this virus that keeps mutating and things like that. But I think we need to do better to protect our kids. I think we need to be better for our kids. And I think Pfizer is a, is a good step in that direction. Decca, your thoughts on this news story? I think I read somewhere that there have been more people that have died from COVID-19 now than the Spanish flu at the time of its peak. Um, yeah, yeah, so, they said that the other day. That's a bit disconcerting. I think that it would make the most sense for everybody to get vaccinated. And now that it's sounding like it's going to be available for young kids to be able to get younger kids other than um, younger than 
what was it, 16, 12? I think that it'd be really good for them to be vaccinated, but we also can't count on their parents vaccinating them. That's the sad part. I don't know how exactly to combat that, but I do know that a problem is going to arise if it hasn't already with some of the teenagers that have maybe wanted to get vaccinated and their parents haven't let them. But if you think about it, they're under the age of 18. So it's technically not their direct choice. Like they can't just go out and get the vaccine. So, you know, that's, there's, there's going to hopefully be more conversations that will happen. Obviously some of these kids are really young and they won't understand, but I do hope people are having these conversations in their household because there are people out there where literally one person in the family they live with isn't vaccinated. Well, why? Like, come on, just, just please, like, let's try to protect everybody, protect the people in your family, protect the people that you, you know, see every day. I, Really, really, really hope that this you know this will increase the amount of people that do get vaccinated, and it surely will. But I, I, I guess I just feel like there is something else that might need to be done, you know, nationwide to to start pushing. Because just telling people to get the vaccine isn't combating like Fox News very well. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. But I, I'm very optimistic, and I think this is a great thing. Okay, and moving on to our next topic. At this point, Cincinnati voters will select new council members in November from a field of 35 candidates who met the August 19th deadline for filing, the most ever since the council manager form of government was adopted in 1925. Greg Landsman is the sole incumbent uh, council member running for re-election who will be on the ballot. Three of the original elected council members either resigned or suspended on federal corruption charges during council in 2020 and they were replaced by appointed council members to fill out their terms. Republicans Steve Gooden and Liz Keaton, along with Democrat Jan Michelle Lemon Kearney, and earlier Republican Betsy Sunderman was appointed to council to replace Amy Murray, who resigned that year to take a job in the Trump administration. Council members Wendell Young and Chris Sealback, both Democrats, and Christopher Smitherman, an independent, could not run for re-election because of the city's term limits law. The same goes for Democrat David Mann, who is running for mayor against Bill Democrat and current clerk of courts, Abtab Perryville. Andrea, your thoughts on this story? I'm starting to watch the debates mm-hmm. on this. I mean, I, I have, through I've been watching the process since, you know, we're looking, since the ballots were going to be finalized and things like that, who's going to be on, who's not going to be on. And I have my top 20 list mm-hmm. um, that I think could make it onto city council. I know there's nine seats. I think that there are going to be a few surprises. I think there's, I, I, I think there's going to be some, um, some people are looking for security and safety. are going to re- elect a few names that they know because they feel comfortable being in the chair. We've never had this many seats before open. So I think it's going to be a historical election because basically we're going to have practically all new people on city council. So they're going to get on the job training. So, and, and on top of that, because of seven, having four years, you have the two years, you're going to have one year of them governing and another year of, of campaigning. So, which that's the reason why we went to four years in the first place to get away from that. And so now we're back to this again. I think it's going to be interesting to see what what happens. Um, I think it's going to be interesting with the mayoral race. I think it's going to be interesting with the city council race. And, you know, my only question is, who actually has read the charter? Who actually understands what their role is, what their job is, 
what they can and cannot do regarding the mayor, regarding the city manager, regarding the governing of the city council, um, of, of the city government and what they can do. City council makes policy. City council controls the budget. City council can order the city, the city manager works for city council, not the other way around. I think some things are coming out of city council right now and from the administration that sort of tries to downplay what the role of city council is. City council has a, is a strong player in our city government. I think we just need wise people to you know, re- realize that and step up to the plate. Decca, your thoughts on this news story? Yeah, you know, John, this is what I call an oversaturated market. I think there's so many people on this list that it's so hard to choose. That is one area. I mean, I'll admit I might have five people that I'm thinking of voting for and the rest are like, I I, I don't know. I really need to see more. It's going to be a lot of campaigning. It's going to be a lot coming up here soon. I don't know what the you know future sees for us here, but I do know that I agree with Andrea, Um, two-year terms are going to be really problematic when it comes to people needing to work for a year and then start pursuing their elections and and campaigning again. Four years was nice in the sense that it would allow the council members to focus on the work that they're doing, but then there's also the argument because at the same time, these people are in the position for a long time. And so if you want to see substantial change, you're going to have to, you know, think of alternatives in, in that way. And that that's, you know, where the two-year terms come in. But both are kind of, it's kind of like, you know, there are pluses and minuses for both. Uh, but I, I, I find it very strange that we just voted for the four-year terms and now it's like back to two years. Like I'm reading that on the news. It's like, what is going on here? What is happening? Why, why do they even bother? Um, and it's like, it sounds like, honestly, like somebody did it for a specific reason. <laughs> and then it's like, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're termed out. I don't really know. That's a th- that's not not trying to be, put any suspicion on anybody, but I just do think that it is kind of strange that we're kind of going back and forth. And um, you know, if, it, when when policies get in place, they, that's I think should be a consideration. Is kind of how long are we really going to be doing this for? Is this a trial, or are we going to take advantage of you know the opportunities that this could provide and and continue four years like that? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, in terms of the people that are you know, on the, on the list, there are some I'm very excited for, and there are some that I straight up do not know. So I'm going to do a little digging and, um, you know, see what I can find and fill in my ballot in the, the most educated way. I, I think there are a lot of impressive people on the ballot. There's a lot of people who have name recognition in a good way or in a bad way. But I, I think that as a voter, we need to decide what, who do we want on council? What skill set do we want? What who do we want to see in the leadership role? Because we're talking about nine people. Well, no, we're to, you know, you know, Greg Lansman will be reelected. He's proven his worth to be on city council. Those who have been appointed, some have proven their worth more than others. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see who's going to be elected for the first time. Um, who's going to join them? on city council, there are a number of names on there who have run before and they'll probably get on this time. The one poll that I'm aware of back in the summer, certain people were polling high, certain people were polling in the middle. Um, it just, it's just a matter of time to see what's gonna happen. You know, it's, it's, 
I just hope they do their homework and they're ready to you're ready to get to work. I'd have to say I like think that it would be really important for people to consider the like you're saying the things that they want in a candidate and really make sure that these candidates that they're look, looking at them and doing the research because like I said I might not know who some of these people are but I'm going to do the research and that is important and probably even more important is just going out to vote. I can't tell you how many people do not go out to vote. If was it 15% Andrea? Yes. Last, last time I'm like this 15% of the city that is that's unacceptable. Oh, I really think that we could do right. better. Well, they're expecting 15% this time as well. Um which I I hope more people turn out. Um I think a lot of people are attracted to what Aftab has to offer. A lot of people like the fact that David Mann has been around for a long time and he, you know, he offers a fatherly look to our uncle, look to, you know, city government. But I think, you know, if you listen to the mayoral debate that went on last night, they both got some good jabs in to at each other. You know, man is touting his years of public service and Aftab is saying, yes, you've been around for a long time. What have you accomplished and why haven't you fixed something? You've been around for so long. Man was jabbing at Aftab because, you know, day one, he walked in and let go 15 people, 15 or 19 people. But at the same time, Aftab said if they weren't qualified for the position that they had, they were going to be let go. They're, they weren't qualified or they were, he broke the good old boy system because it was known the clerk's office was a patronage position, was a place for patronage jobs. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things of where you have to decide what's best. Also, there is change in the air. Are you going to go with the change or you're not? And I think a lot of people need to decide what they want in a leader, what they want from City Hall, and go for it. Then moving on to our next story. The FBI announced Tuesday that the remains found in Wyoming are those of Gabby Petito. Petito's body was taken to the Teton County Coroner's Office for an autopsy after it was found in Grand Teton National Park on Sunday. The coroner Tuesday confirmed the positive identification and classified Petito's death as a homicide. How Petito was killed has not been revealed. Petito's boyfriend, Brian Laundry, has been named as a person of interest in the case. However, he has gone missing. Andrea, your thoughts on this new story? I think it's so sad when a young life is, has been taken away. I think it's horrible that she was disrespected. Her body was found, you know, and it, it was murder. But at the same time, how many Black people have gone missing? How many people have, Native Americans have gone missing that we don't have a national search for? We don't have the FBI out for. They've, they've not gotten national articles or, or, um, or news organizations talking about them missing. I think it's horrible how she died. No one should die the way she did. Um, I think when things like this and the boyfriend is missing, you could almost assume what went on, um, but you don't want to speculate until you know the facts of the case. But I think at the same time, Joy Reid came out and spoke about this case and, you know, said missing the missing white woman syndrome and how the media will play up that more than other cases, other people have been missing. I think if we're going to have extensive news coverage for anyone, for Amber Alert, for any missing person's case, 
we need to play it up for all, not just for a certain few. Deca, your thoughts on this story? Yeah, I think what Andrew, uh, I think what Andrea said was spot on. You know, it's very sad to see, and it's you know, people shouldn't have to die that way. But the the missing white woman syndrome does bring attention the the simple fact that there are a lot of African American Indigenous women and and men who've been murdered. I mean, there's a story in Cincinnati. So like a little history. So I'm an architectural historian. I'll bring in um I'll bring in a little a little story for you guys. In Avondale, there used to be a number of African Americans that would end up going missing, and nobody really paid much attention to it. This was like in the late 1800s, and what had ended up happening, and they found out later, was these people were murdered and their bodies were taken to a medical facilities for research. So they they just got missing. They were perfectly healthy people and disappeared overnight. Those types of stories, while we're in the 21st century now, are still relevant. And I think it's important to reflect back on realizing that we're a society that really has focused so much on one particular type of person, especially when things like this happen and people die like every day numerous numerous people die every day and it's it's generally really sad and I think that there is something to somebody being murdered that intrigues people but this isn't a sport this isn't a game this is a woman's life and you know that in itself is really sad Um, but I, I hope that we could call attention to some of the other women particularly women of color who who have lost their lives because of things like this and that haven't been recognize for the humans and the people that they are and the lives they serve so that's it for the top news stories of the week and now i want to move on to the main topic on our show so once again i want to reintroduce deca hussein Wetzel. how are you doing today deca i am doing very well thank you so much no problem well i we had you on our show i think at least a month ago mm-hmm. so we just want to i just want to catch up and see how you're doing especially with the um, urban roots podcast how's that going that's going really really well uh, vanessa and i are working on season two which is more national focused so we have episodes coming up on Biddy Bridget Mason, who was an African-American woman uh, who was enslaved in the early to mid-1800s in, in the South, and then went on through this Mormon exodus with her slave owner and the family um, and numerous other white families and slaves that went to Utah. And then from Utah, she ended up going to California and um, was freed she gained her freedom along with 13 other african-american women and children and um that was in 1856 and from there she just like went on to really establish herself and these other african-american families did as well in la and they made and created a society that was just so so cool and neat to to read about because essentially they really built black la and la in itself and so you know that was literally in downtown what's today is downtown la and i think it's an incredible story so we talk with people about the trial in particular um it's gonna be like a two-part episode because it's so much information that we you know we're gonna do a little history and take people through her story and then uh, to talk about 
know, the impact in LA that she had. And so I'm really, really excited for that. And we have an episode that we interviewed Alelia Bundles, Madame C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter. Uh, I'm sorry, Madame C.J. Walker's great-granddaughter. And she just was so wonderful and very intriguing to talk to. Uh, there are some stories in there that I think will be really interesting for people because we try to juxtapose the the things that people have heard about Madame C.J. Walker might have seen in the movie or the miniseries Self Made, and you know what her real life was and her relationships were like. Um, so it's all very you know so socio cultural focused, and I'm very very excited because we're going to also talk about place as well and how these women made place and established place and created, you know, black communities that ended up thriving. And that's kind of a main theme of our, of our season two, um, but not necessarily the only thing we're going to talk about. So we'll also talk a little bit about some historic cemeteries um, and, and how African-Americans were buried in treated in, in certain places within the cemetery movement, the rural cemetery movement. And that's kind of a whole like people who might be sort of preservation you know, focused or you know architects might've heard of that term. And I think we talk about it a lot in historic preservation but we don't really explain it. And so I wanted to do that in the podcast. So season two is gonna have lots of great stuff, um, you know, m- much more um, broad uh, and, Vanessa, actually, my podcast partner, had an interview where she spoke um, Spanish with a gentleman in the cemeteries in Santiago, Chile, and that's going to be an episode that we're going to work to try to provide a full uh, Spanish translation, and um, it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really neat because I just really am into the idea of inclusivity and making sure everybody can be able to listen whose voices are being represented. Yeah, that definitely sounds exciting. Do you have any idea when season two is going to start? I can't say for sure, but keep out, uh, but keep a lookout in uh, 2022. It'll be in the earlier part, but yeah, we'll, we're working hard to get that content out. I will say that, you know, we have um, ample opportunities for people to uh, help fund to, which will honestly help us get these episodes out faster. So, you know, if anybody's listening out there and they, they like what they're hearing, you can reach out to, you know, urban roots podcast uh, at gmail.com or on Instagram at urban roots culture. And, you know, we, we've got a website, we've got lots of things that, you know, people, there's portals for, for donating, but um, you know, larger donors is something we're really, really looking for. And so if people haven't heard the Urban Roots podcast, please do listen. It's on Apple, Spotify, Google. It's like every everywhere you can really imagine. And the first season we focus on Lost Voices of Cincinnati. And so it's really, you know, pretty special to to hear if you live in Cincinnati. I think it'll be widely receptive in other other cities too. But right now, um our main base is Cincinnati people. Of course. And you guys also have a nonprofit, uh, Urban Media, uh, am I right? Yeah, we have a nonprofit called Urbanist Media. And essentially, I've started to call what we do anti-racist preservation education, basically making preservation more inclusive. Historic preservation is a field that not many African-American people, people of color, minorities uh, end up going into. And 
it's just not, not seemingly as accessible as some of the other majors in schools. It's not seen as an option. And it's kind of because the only way to really become, become a professional preservationist or a professional architectural historian would be to get your master's in historic preservation or a related field. That makes you a secretary of interior qualified preservationist, which is a standard that you have to meet in order to be able to uh, complete certain types of preservation documentation, like a national register nomination, perhaps, or uh, uh, in particular when reviewing uh, his section 106 um, projects, which is a something that had come out of the National Preservation Act of 1966. And that was very much a he, making sure that the federal government, when federal funds are involved, don't step on and demolish and just bulldoze historic properties. So, you know, that's in place, but there's not a lot of protections other than that. And I think we need to be thinking about how preservation policy needs to be changed and how we can be better about doing it in Cincinnati and in other cities. And so Urbanist Media really takes Cincinnati as a case study because um, we're a nationally focused nonprofit. We want to help anyone and everyone. But in Cincinnati, we're seeing these specific areas where we're like, well, if we attempt to assist in this, then maybe we can start to get the word out or get something involved. So for example, uh, we just submitted a, a grant to work with the Evanston Community Council's um, Employment Center. So it's called the Evanston Employment Resource Center, the EERC. And they were working with Beverly Lamb there to create a foundation for recording oral histories in Evanston. That will hopefully be something that other people can use like later on who might want to do podcasts and capture and hear the stories of the civil rights movement because we definitely want to focus on talking to people um, who grew up in that that time period and it was something that I learned when I was working on the podcast that it was a little harder to find people who were older to speak to and and know that they they are there so we wanted to take the opportunity to try to capture their stories and then they can also uh we are setting up a, a foundation for them. So we want to get scanners in so people can bring in their so people can bring in their photographs and, and manuscripts or letters. And all of this is is not for urbanist media to do, but we, we're trying to set it up to help and train the people in the community uh, who are utilizing the EERC for employment resources. So it will give them a leg up and the different or different kind of skill set that they can hopefully use in whatever job that they might end up pursuing and then you know the EERC will hopefully be able to continue doing this for years to come now also I wanted to ask you about um you recently um, joined as a researcher for the Cincinnati Preservation Association uh tell me what that type of job entails exactly yeah so I'm super excited because after working on the podcast I just came across so many historic properties and African-American neighborhoods in Cincinnati. And I was just like, this is so, so interesting. This is so interesting. I'd love to, you know, research that more and look into that more. And so the Cincinnati Preservation Association job is a researcher position, and it is going to be me identifying African-American historic sites that are important and significant and that should be saved and preserved. So it could be, you know, building that might be threatened by demolition, but also just a 
property that people find important. Um, like one that I am very uh, fond of is grew the group of synagogues turned churches in Avondale. Like that's a really neat district. So I'm looking forward to exploring that and um, writing national register nominations. Like I, uh, I'm glad I had uh, explained that a little bit because some of the things that I'm doing are very historic preservation focused. So like I said, national register, which will also include, you know, nominating historic districts, not just individual buildings. So that's really exciting. And I'll have the, the backing to do the research and the support from Cincinnati Preservation Association, CPA. They are an incredible group of people and I'm looking very forward to working with all of them. From Paul to Mario to Diana, it, they're all very talented and, and wholehearted individuals that I think are really going to teach me a lot about how like, and together I think that we can also like really take this preservation thing to the next level. So I'm very excited for that too. Yeah, that definitely sounds very fascinating. Uh, Andrea, do you have any questions for uh, DECA or anything? No, well, I mean, Urban Radio Podcast is telling the neighborhood story in a different way. And I I think I applaud her for doing it. I I think it's, it's another way of capturing our history because we're losing people left and right COVID has taken so many people from us too soon where we haven't caught their story. So I I think um, this is a great way for um, local people to tell their story, but also um, on a national basis, getting people to tell their story about how their neighborhood came to be and what impact they had. It's a wonderful way, a broader example of community engagement. And I think that's fantastic. Thank you. You know, I actually had a lot of people that I know in other cities who've listened, reach out and just be like, oh, will you come to this city and do this? Will you come and do this? And I am like, I would love to. But now I'm just looking for the funding to be able to do that. Because, you know, as I mentioned, the Urban Roots podcast really is a national focus or, you know, international focus podcast. We want to expand outside of Cincinnati. Uh, but that's not to say that, you know, Urbanist Media can't work on another podcast that focuses on Cincinnati history. You know, I think me and John have great speaking voices. Hint, hint. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, this, um, the Urban Roots podcast and the Urbanist Media thing, it, it all sounds so fantastic. It really does. And thank you for doing all the work that you do. Well, thank you guys for having me on here to talk about it and to really, you know, acknowledge uh, CPA and, and the awesome stuff that they're really doing to start to really make preservation more inclusive as well. And so it was, I, I know that there are going to be really great things in the, in the future for all of us. Well, thank you for coming on and uh, hopefully we'll see you on a later day. And I must say, I cannot wait to see uh, season two of the Urban Roots podcast. I'm halfway through it right now and it is a excellent podcast, I must say. Well, thank you so much. Oh, yay. <laughs> it really is good to hear, uh, especially for somebody who's been new in podcasting too. So, <laughs> Okay, well, thank you, Decca, for talking about today's subjects also. And thank you, Andrea, for contributing to today's subjects. It was really, really insightful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic.
So make sure to check out today's stories on our website at www.thecincinnatiherald.com. You can also check out our print edition, which is sold at your local Kroger, UDF, Walgreens, Joseph at Booksellers, and at select service stations. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, and TuneIn Radio. Just search for the Cincinnati Herald Podcast. Follow us at the Cincinnati Herald on Facebook. Follow us at Cincy Herald on Twitter and Instagram. And follow us on YouTube. Just search for the Herald TV. I'm John Alexander Reese, digital editor of the Cincinnati Herald, and have a good day.